running is a simple and incredibly beneficial form of physical activity that is very accessible. Starting to run regularly can be difficult, but if you still succeed, you will receive lots of advantages. What changes will happen to your body if you start running every day? Watch this video till the end. It'll be interesting. Let's go. First, you will be happier. According to studies, a 30-minute run is enough to improve the mood of a person suffering from a depressive disorder. Moreover, it is absolutely not necessary to run fast to get this effect. It is observed even in those who run at a walking tempo. In addition, when you run for a long time, endorphins begin to be produced in your body which gives you a feeling of uplift or the so-called runner's high. You will burn a lot of calories. Running requires a lot of calories. For example, a 70-kilogram runner will burn 20 calories per minute if he runs at a moderate tempo. In 30 minutes, he will burn 366 calories. And this applies to running on the plane. If you run against wind, uphill, or speed up, you will burn a lot more calories. You will have strong knees. Contrary to popular opinion, running is good for knee health. Scientists have found that runners are less likely to suffer from knee pain than non-runners. The thing is that running helps people maintain a normal body mass index, strengthen leg muscles, and bones. Every time you hit the ground with your feet while running, your muscles, tendons, and ligaments are put under stress they adapt and become stronger. Walking, swimming, and other activities without this type of impact load won't strengthen your muscles and bones as well as the running. You will have a healthy heart. Aerobic exercises help to strengthen the cardiovascular system. And by the way, you don't even need to run for a long time. 10 minutes of slow jogging is enough to reduce the risk of developing cardiovascular disease, but you should run every day. Your brain will work more efficiently. If you've already forgotten what you ate for lunch yesterday or can't remember where you put your keys, immediately put on your sneakers and run. Aerobic exercises which increase your heart rate and makes you sweat has been proven by scientists to improve brain function. You will sleep better. In a small experiment, scientists found that those who regularly ran at a moderate tempo for at least 5 times a week for 30 minutes began to sleep better, which in itself is beneficial, and also noticed an improvement in their mental state. Your immunity will be strengthened and you will get sick less. We have already listed many benefits of aerobic exercises, but not all. Regular aerobic exercise for 30 minutes or more reduces the risk of dying from various forms of cancer. You will have beautiful legs. The largest muscles of the body are concentrated in the lower part of it, and running loads them all. You will pump your hips, calves, and buttocks with one exercise. But not only the legs are involved in running, the abdominal and back muscles are involved in stabilizing the body. Thus, you will pump your whole body if you run regularly. How to run every day safely. To avoid running injuries, follow these simple rules. Buy running sneakers. Regular shoes are not designed for running and won't protect you from injury. Increase the load gradually. Add something else like swimming or cycling to your workouts. Do exercises for different muscle groups. Don't forget to warm up before your workout and stretch after. Find a coach who will point out your technique mistakes and help you correct them. People who are just starting to run often have one question. Which is better, running on the street or on a treadmill? Let's look at this issue in more detail. Most runners live in metropolitan areas. 
It would be great if in all major cities the weather was like in Miami, but this is not the case. Often weather conditions are set against the training plan, and then closed gyms come to the rescue with their stable internal ecosystem. Where is the best place to run? Psychologically, it is better to run on the street. In this case, you will feel the movement. However, there are many other factors. If you live in a place with polluted air by cars or factories, then when you run on the street, harmful metals will accumulate in your body, which will negatively affect your health. In this case, it's better to run on a treadmill in a gym with filtered air. If you live near a park, then it's better to run outside to saturate the body with oxygen. When running on the street, it is psychologically easier to fulfill the training volume and easier to vary the speed regimes. If conditions permit, outdoor running is preferable. By the way, friends, write in the comments, do you run? And where do you like it better, on the street or on the treadmill? Share, it'll be interesting to read. I also recommend you to watch other videos on my channel. Links are on the screen now. If you like this video, push the like button and subscribe to my channel. See you soon. Today, for the first time in human history, we have more overweight people walking the earth than underweight. By the year 2030, one in two people are going to be not just overweight, but obese. It sets the stage for all the bad things you don't want to get. Alzheimer's, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer. Cancer is caused by food, and sugar is the number one culprit. I want to feel better now. I want to stop getting this chronic fatigue. I want to get my mental health back in shape. I want my sleep to be good. Some people come at it for, from like, my skin is bad. I want to get my skin better. Other people come at it from, I'm having hormonal issues like PCOS, erectile dysfunction, whatever. They get to glucose. They study that and weight loss is a nice consequence. Fructose says don't burn fat. Fructose tells your body winter is coming. Get ready. We've also seen that high sugar bolus can reduce testosterone by about 25%, which also persists. And by and large, people are being taken down by these kinds of diseases that are, that are essentially driven by being undernourished and overfed. These people with the obesity, the diabetes, the hypertension, the dyslipidemia, and all the downstream issues, the coronary artery disease, the Alzheimer's, the cancer, and again type 2 diabetes, are the consequence. Added sugar is insidious today. It's in everything. It's in, it's in sauces. It's in coffee beverages. Coffee chains, for a cup of coffee, we end up drinking uh, dessert. And it causes what is called insulin resistance, meaning that insulin doesn't work as well in your body through a number of mechanisms. So that's the dirty secret of fructose that the industry didn't want us to know about. Now it's been called out. So, so now we're seeing one in two Americans suffer from either pre-diabetes or type two or type two diabetes. And, and that is when you eat too much sugar and starch. And every time you do that, it raises your insulin. Your body becomes resistant to the insulin, and so it doesn't work as well, so you need more insulin. Mm -hmm. And insulin does what? Insulin makes you hungry, it makes you store belly fat, it locks the fat in the fat cells, and it slows your metabolism. It's like a quadruple threat for your body to gain weight. It's the big killers are now, by sugar and food. Yes. yes. So if you change your diet, you should be able to cure, prevent, prevent or cure sometimes. Alzheimer's? 100%. Yes, 100%. I mean, the studies are there. Even people already have Alzheimer's when they improve their diet, they can wake they get up more functionality. Yeah. By the year 2030, one in two people are gonna be not just overweight, but obese, are ultra-processed ultra food products that by and large we overconsume today. Your average American today derives 60% of their calories from ultra-processed foods. These are the foods that line our supermarket aisles. Our supermarkets tend to be designed the same way. It's the, the perishable fresh food that tend to be around the perimeter. 
The aisles have all the shelf-stable convenience foods that are minimally satiating, highly calorically dense, and hyper-palatable. So those three factors make those kinds of foods, particularly when they're all you have access to, a recipe for disaster. Consuming a high-sugar bolus can also elevate your blood pressure, which we know is a risk factor for neurodegeneration. Um, we've seen that one high-sugar bolus, about 75 grams uh, of sugar, can cause your systolic blood pressure to elevate for two hours. We've also seen that a high-sugar bolus can reduce testosterone by about 25%, which also persists for two hours. Yeah. Why? Any guesses why we'd have an evolutionary response to sugar that lowers our testosterone? That's a good question. There's no, a hunter-gatherer would have never had access to that kind of rapidly digested sugar deluge, right? Because we would have had fruit and our fruit as hunter-gatherers would have been a fraction as sweet as they are today. But the notion of fruit juice or a sugary, high glute, 75 gram glucose beverage, for example, didn't exist. Um, so I think what it does is it sends our body into a stress state. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the reasons why we see the elevation of blood pressure. And I would also assume because stress can reduce testosterone. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, we are seeing a decline in testosterone. Are we, I've always assumed that's multifactorial, that's poor diet, that's adding on weight. All of the above, but as I mentioned, in that study where they saw a 25% reduction in testosterone, they used a 75 gram sugar bolus, right? Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, your average adult today consumes 77 grams of added sugar every single day. So they're consuming that every day. So yeah, the added the added sugar thing, I think, is uh, it's a problem. Now again, if you have a big calorie budget, if you're a bodybuilder, if you're, um, you know, if you're if you're burning an uh, uh, an intense amount of calories on a daily basis, you do have a, a, a discretionary caloric budget. But for your average person, again, today your average person is, is overweight, bordering on obesity, um, has some component of metabolic illness, glucose dysregulation. I would say that being being a sleuth and being able to identify added sugar and then and then cut that out, um, or at least minimize your your consumption of it, I think you'd be doing your health major favors. You're probably on a sugar addiction roller coaster every single day of your life. If you've been on this glucose addiction for a long time, your body will take a week, two weeks to be able to switch over to burning fat. And that two weeks is really painful, mm -hmm. right? Most people eat starches and sugars for breakfast. Then maybe they buy a muffin or a pastry or a croissant or you know something like that. Or maybe they just have a coffee with sugar in it. The thing is, if you create a big glucose spike at breakfast, it actually controls your entire day. Your entire day turns into this roller coaster. And if you've never had a savory breakfast and you've spent your entire life having a sweet breakfast, you have no idea how much of a different world it is when you start your day with savory foods. You teach your body to burn fat again, you get back some of that metabolic flexibility, and then, you know, a month in, if you want to cut out sugar entirely, it's not going to be hard. You're no longer going to be controlled by this craving center being activated every 90 minutes in your brain. It's a very different experience. Eat your protein, maybe a little bit of fat, eat in the right order, you're adding in some vinegar. Add vegetables to the beginning of your meal too. And all of the benefits from your protocol, that, it really is that. If we look at our glucose levels and we eat in a way that balances those spikes, a few things happen. One, we reduce how many cravings we have. Cravings are a big barrier to fat loss because people get these intense feelings for oh, I really want to eat a cookie, then there's a whole cycle of guilt and shame and just the whole thing is like quite damaging. Second, when you balance your glucose levels, your hunger hormones get tamed. So you're no longer hungry every 90 minutes. Third thing, 
when you balance your glucose levels, your insulin levels come down. And in order to lose fat, your insulin levels have to be down. So what I see in my community and the readers of my book is that when they focus on glucose first, they sort of naturally lose fat as a side effect, as a consequence. But the primary objective is, I want to feel better now. I want to stop getting this chronic fatigue. I want to get my mental health back in shape. I want my sleep to be good. I just want to feel better. And also, I want to feel connected to my body. That's really the primary angle. Some people come at it for, from like, my skin is bad. I want to get my skin better. Other people come at it from, I'm having hormonal issues like PCOS, erectile dysfunction, whatever. They get to glucose. They study that and weight loss is a nice consequence. So many people with borderline diabetes or frank diabetes, mild elevation of blood sugar, or can't lose that last 20 pounds and are doing everything they possibly can. Darn it, I'm doing everything I can. There's got to be something else. This may be that something else, maybe that missing link. Technology has given so much to our lives, while at the same time, it's taken away one thing. Human movement. It's no secret that with less movement, there's been much more physical ailments. You're probably no stranger to Google searches like this, or YouTube searches like this. There's massive growing industries based on giving relief and fixing pain. But are they really working? Are they getting to that root cause or just masking the issue for a few moments? Well, there's one thing that you probably haven't tried. It won't be talked about at the doctor's office and you won't see it on the YouTube fitness homepage. But I'm convinced that it heals the body better than any other treatments or prescriptions out there. It's this new thing called crawling. Ha, see, now that's kind of a joke because crawling is more ancient than human beings. It's the first thing that we do as we develop from babies. And anyone who has spent time doing it knows that it makes your body feel more connected. But what does connected actually mean? That's one of these holistic words that can seem a bit woo-woo, like grounded or open. It's hard to communicate a feeling that can't be measured. So instead, let's talk about what we do know. We know that humans evolved to locomote. Imagine if we couldn't move forward or back, we would have been extinct a long time ago. The way we move forward is by walking upright. Now, whether we were born to run or did parkour in the trees, we know for sure that we walked a lot. And when we break down walking, we see that it's similar to how most animals move, shifting weight from side to side. Whether upright on two feet or down on all fours, the way we move forward is a transfer of force from one side of the body to the other. 
And what's interesting to note is that this movement is facilitated by the whole body. Nothing moves in isolation. As one leg raises, the other shoulder drives forward. As one leg pushes off, the opposite shoulder drives back. These coordinations are all reactive in the body. We don't have to put conscious effort into them, they just happen. But what happens when these natural patterns become a bit disconnected? Let's take a look at the movements we do in the gym. Most traditional exercises keep our weight in one place, bracing our spine to be stiff and rigid. Even movements that we know to be quite functional, such as the squat, keep our weight in the same place throughout the full movement. Now let's look at the movement we all do most these days, sitting in a chair. Notice the body not shifting from side to side. At all. Now, this isn't a video saying that you shouldn't go to the gym. It's important to be strong, and the best way to become strong is to limit variables. Keep the spine straight and the feet stable so you can do the maximum work with your legs. Or isolate a specific muscle group that seems to have become dormant. But it's not natural human movement. It's rarely linear, because it involves movement in all planes of motion. And if you do too much sitting around, or too much traditional exercise, or stack them together, you'll be left feeling disconnected. And pain pops up. We're back to those Google searches seeking to fix our issues. But what if the solution to our problems isn't fixing a specific muscle group, but to practice being more human again? Could we crawl our way back to a pain-free, healthy body? The ground is this lovely tool that we all have access to. Watch an elite level runner and see how they use the ground as their friend to propel themselves forward. Watch a dancer and see how gravity seems to affect them differently. Athletes who master their craft seem like they move lighter. But better yet, watch a young dog run for a ball. There's no inhibition in their movement. They move fast and graceful. Now watch someone with an injury or pain walk. Things look clunky, heavy. But if we can reestablish a good relationship with the ground, we can hopefully build our body back into its natural form, the unrestricted, childlike movement that we all grew up with. So there's this small but growing fitness subculture that are using movements closer to how animals or our early ancestors moved. They use terms like primal movements, animal movements, natural movements, developmental movements. And for the average gym goer, it can look quite strange, someone hopping around the ground like a monkey. But certain primal movement social media videos blowing up indicates that there's a lot of interest out there. This may be because when you see these movements, there does seem to be something natural about them. Although different, something resonates. And when performed by someone with a lot of practice, they can look functional, but also fluid. And even though these movements have been gaining popularity recently, they've been used for a long time, specifically in martial arts. Go to a jiu-jitsu, judo, or kung fu class and animal movements are used as basic warm-ups. 
go to a capoeira class and you'll see that certain styles of capoeira are essentially animal movements. And many other disciplines, including gymnastics and parkour, have used these movements for many years. So why do they use them? Well, they seem to be the best at conditioning joints. A well-conditioned joint is functional and resilient and it's ready to do more. Picture someone sitting in a chair for 10 hours a day and never fully bending their knee versus someone who gets into a low crouched position often. Whose knees do you think will be more resilient to movement in life? And this is what most people experience when they start practicing. This connected feeling that I spoke of earlier happens when the body starts utilizing these fundamental movements in a variety of planes of motion. I've spent the last eight years doing a lot of different styles of ground movement, but I'm convinced that it all starts with the basic crawl. Now, I can say a lot of words about this topic, but it can't really be understood unless you experience it in your body. Luckily, I made a free routine for you as a companion to this video so you can start crawling your way back to a stronger, more connected body. If you are the type of person who is motivated and wants to go all in, then check out our 90-day course Move Strong Now, which combines animal movements with strength and mobility work. If you've experienced the magic of crawling or you're looking forward to your journey, then drop us a comment below. Like this video, subscribe to Strengthside. I'll see you in the next one, as always. No amount of alcohol is safe. Drinking alcoholic beverages can be harmful to our health. It's the most damaging drug to society as a whole. The danger goes up with every additional drink. Alcohol is actually considered a class one carcinogen or cancer causing agent. So that's the same category as benzene and tobacco smoke. It is the poison, the acetylaldehyde itself, that leads to the effect of being inebriated or drunk. Canadian health authorities had previously said that a low risk amount of alcohol was about 10 drinks per week. Your risks start to increase at one standard drink per week. Even just seven glasses of wine across the week, there is going to be some degeneration of your brain in response to that alcohol intake. I was wanting to be a certain person but making all the wrong decisions. Citing some of this research about alcohol's impacts suggested lowering that to two drinks per week. In the Western cultures, alcohol is the most harmful drug overall because it's the most harmful drug to society because it's the most widely used drug. A very small percentage of individuals in the world can quit anything on their own. And really, our main message is that less is better. You know, when it comes to health, you know, less is more. What do we know about alcohol's impact on us? Alcohol is one of the leading behavior-related causes of health problems and deaths, and also some social problems and economic costs, ranging from things like injuries and accidents to cancers and actually uh, heart and cardiovascular disease. Shoveling alcohol, you know, hiding, hiding away the problems has been something we've been very, become very expert at. But the really sad statistic is that only 10% of people suffering from an alcohol use disorder seek treatment. I hit rock bottom. I got lost in the sauce of drinking. Out of those 10% of the people, only one will have any form of long-term success. This is why I don't like alcohol, and this is why I don't like drugs, because I don't, you're, you're not in control. 
a substance is doing that. And that means 90% of people who are suffering right now aren't going to seek treatment. And you know why they're not going to seek treatment? It's because they've been told that all they can do is quit and go to meetings for the rest of their life. I remember having a conversation with Patrick one night. He picked me up in his car and we're sitting together. And it was awkward silence for a good 15, 20 minutes. So eventually one of my friends who was going through it bad, I was at the prison to pick him up. I'm sitting outside till three o'clock in the morning. Finally, he gets out, gets in a car. This was like his fourth or fifth UI. We didn't say anything to each other. And, and we're driving home and I don't say anything to him. And he says, uh, hey, Pat, how come you're not saying anything to me? I said, I said, you know, just to be honest with me, I just see you being in pain. Finally, I said, I don't know why. I choose to do what I'm doing. And he says, you always have a choice. And we started talking a little bit about two words. He said, you know, Mario, perspective and gratitude. And those two words changed everything for me. But as we were having a conversation, I just want to see you get out of this thing. I don't know what you're going through, but you're in pain. And I hope you realize there's value to life. I don't know how to help you. I don't have a method. The only thing I know is what I've seen others go through, whether it's AA and all these other programs. He went into asking me who I want to be, what do I want to do? And we just went through a whole conversation and it was a human conversation. It was a people conversation. It was no business, no numbers. It was just relationship. But uh, I hope you figure out a way to get through this. Do you know that I love you? Yes. Do you think I care about you? Yes. Do you think I want the best for you? Yes. Do you want to be friends long-term? Yes. Are we family? Yes. Do you want to change? And that's the one where I got stuck. You have to want to change if you're struggling with some kind of addiction, like I was. It's not easy to say that, but I wanted to change. I just didn't know how. And eventually he figured out a way to get through it and he's doing great. He's changed his life you know, in a completely different way. Yeah, but what you said to him, people should be aware of that. That is love and support. And it's visceral because people don't want it to be true. So there are two things I would say about this. The first is both a conscious and a subconscious level. People are fearful of other drugs, illegal drugs, because it helps deflect their attention away from the problems of alcohol at a personal level, but also at a, at a political level. Politicians love to get hysterical about a new drug because it means they can do something about drugs and they don't have to be held to account over their failure to deal with the problems of alcohol. Right. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that I, I would say that there's almost no family in Britain, if you look at an extended family, three generations, in which, which doesn't have someone who's been damaged by alcohol through addiction, through violence, traffic accidents, or being a victim because of someone else who was drunk and violent. Right. Almost every family in Britain is affected, but we don't own up to it. Right. We kind of push it under the carpet. You know, we, we know there's a problem, but we don't talk about it because well, we don't know what to do about it, we're embarrassed. And so that shoveling alcohol, you know, hiding, hiding away the problems has been something we've been very, become very expert at. We know the pharmacology of alcohol in the brain and how it does that. It's, we can, we can explain an enormous amount of what's going on with alcohol. Right. I mean, to me, I find that quite exciting because, you know, it's a, as a brain scientist, that's what I want to understand. I want to understand the brain. And you know, alcohol is a very interesting probe of different brain systems. And the changes we see 
underpin the effects of alcohol, you know, are relevant to all sorts of disorders. They're relevant to disorders like sleep disorders, relevant to epilepsy, relevant to anxiety, depression. This drug, which you can just go and buy in the shops, can produce these enormous changes in people's lives. Sometimes some habits can turn into lifestyles, and certain lifestyles don't lead to all the benefits and all the amazing things that life has to offer. Some lifestyles lead to very dark paths, a depression, uh, anxiety, stress, um, and if not controlled, can also lead to some of the worst case scenarios out there in life. One of them being never reaching your capacity, never really having an identity or a self-worth, losing all integrity, all dignity, and losing yourself. Just a few years ago, I was in a very dark place in my life. They say that depression comes from the inability to construct the future in your mind. I couldn't see the future. I didn't know who I was supposed to be. I was wanting to be a certain person but making all the wrong decisions. I made a lot of mistakes. When it comes to alcohol itself, which is something that I was struggling with at the time, it went slowly from being a work hard, play hard, have a drink, to two drinks, to three drinks, to then a habit, to then a daily habit, to then a 24-7 habit, to then a every weekend habit, getting lost in myself habit. Sometimes if you don't watch the kind of habits that you're building, they become lifestyles. Before I knew it, I was digging myself a hole and everywhere I looked, it was so dark and I lost myself. I spiraled into a sense of no self-worth and I struggled a lot and nobody knew. I hit rock bottom to the point where I almost lost my job, to the point where some people had to have very tough conversations with me. Some friends had to deal with my drama and they say hurting people hurt people. I was hurting inside and I was hurting others and didn't even know it. Want to go drinking tonight? Thanks, but I'm actually sober now. Uh, okay, no problem. Can I ask why? I'll show you. I was sober for a couple of years, and then I thought, you know, I want to just drink like a normal person, and I want to have wine at dinner and so on. And, I, I, and, you know, I was able to for about eight years. I'm embarrassed how many times I quit and couldn't do it. Well, I was at a point in my life where it was like, this has got to stop because my hangovers were getting so ridiculous and debilitating for a whole day. So I'm not doing this anymore. And I read a book and then I was done. I had my first beer at 11. One of my cousins gave it to me. It's that awful thing that you hear every alcoholic talk about. And if they don't talk about it, they're lying. Like, it's you just become an awful human being. Like, you just... Um, you're selfish. Alcohol consumption, even in the low amounts, causes harm to the entire body. So many years that like the narrative was for me is this has a hold over you. You will never break this cycle. You are a prisoner of your own weakness. Addiction is really anything we do or use compulsively to make ourselves feel better that has negative consequences. I, for maybe the first time, I'm proud of myself that I didn't quit quitting because it's demoralizing. Like to truly be powerless over something is fucking demoralizing and so rough. If you stop drinking for 30 days, just cut back and what they're finding is people are living longer, 
that's clearing out their kidneys. Arterial uh, sclerosis is being reversed. People are having all kinds of um, uh, more energy. They're losing weight. To me, I know that alcohol is uh, usually like bad for you, but I didn't know like how bad it was. I started to drink more and more and more every day. And I come home from work and I start to drink and I just sit there and drink till pass out on the couch. From 15 to 24, I drank and used my way through life and eventually ended up in Boston. At that point, my addiction had gotten so bad that I was paranoid and afraid of everything. To keep it simple, we use for one or two reasons. So to either start feeling something or to stop feeling something. And I wouldn't say it's a challenge every day. And particularly, the path that I'm on is, uh, it's one that's, it's, it's one I wished I could have been on a long time ago. You'll ruin your life somehow, some way. It is everywhere. It can pass into all the cells and tissues of your body. It was a very progressive decline in my aspirations. Alcohol is normalized in our society. You want to figure out something that you're doing with your life that's worth not getting drunk and screwing up. I drank in search of happiness and in search of a lifestyle that I thought would bring me to happiness. Um, it didn't, and I woke up one morning going, wow, I've drank a lot, but I'm still not happy. What's that about? I recall in high school, motivational speakers would come to my school and say, don't do drugs. But absent from those talks was any reference to alcohol. Alcohol got introduced to my life. You might say, well, why do people drink too much? It's like, if you like alcohol, that's a stupid question. It is ingrained. It's the social glue that sticks everything together. And my mom was chiming in with, it's way bad. You don't want to do it. You don't want to end up like that. Over 3 million people worldwide will die this year to alcohol-related causes. From baby showers, christenings, freshers week, weddings, parties, funerals, barbecues, celebrations, and everything in between. That. So she's in my ear making it sound really logical to not do it, and I'm watching people act a fool who are doing it. We've been brainwashed into thinking that there are just two types of drinkers. There are those at rock bottom, alcohol-dependent, and there's everybody else, happy, social drinkers who are just occasionally a bit lightweight and can't hold their beer. You do stupid things when you're drunk. You hurt yourself. You, you compromise your health. It's really hard on the people around you. You tend to turn into a liar and it screws up your life. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but it's pretty fun. Yeah, well, it is, but you need something better than that. Uh, and I burned every bridge that I had, virtually unemployable. My options had been eliminated. My life was eviscerated. My family didn't want anything to do with me. I'd lost my friendships. I had no way forward. In fact, the reality is very different. It's a spectrum. I would highly recommend you get off the booze elevator before it hits rock bottom. Uh, and I just continued to dig that hole deeper and deeper and deeper until one day I had that moment that you hear with people who are in recovery, that, that moment of clarity where I realized I just couldn't live this way any longer. My elevator had you know, gone down to the bottom floor and, uh, and, the, and, and I met my pain threshold, you know, back to the, 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 this thesis around pain. Like I had um, reached a point where I could no longer tolerate the pain of my current situation. And the fear, the pain associated with the fear of change was eclipsed by the pain that I was feeling in that moment. And that's what motivated me to change. I went to a treatment center uh, where I lived for a hundred days, which is pretty long time to be in a rehab center. And I did that because I knew if I didn't get this right, that my life was done, you know. And so I took that opportunity seriously. I recognized that 
despite the fact that I think I'm a smart guy, my best thinking had me uh, literally institutionalized. And that if I couldn't get a grasp on how to live and develop some new skills and, and a new toolbox for how to approach my life, that, um, that I was gonna end up in jail or I was gonna kill somebody else or myself. You know, now we're about a year and a half later, and it's and my life has been has turned around immeasurably. It's a wonderful thing, and I I say to anybody watching or listening to this that you know it's um, that there is a lot of pressure on young people not to drink necessarily, but to find happiness through going out and getting mashed, <laughs> like like and and. I'm sh and that's fun and have a good time and good luck to you but if it doesn't work for you and if you keep waking up going hmm I don't seem to be having nearly as good time as most of my friends uh, then you know then think about it it doesn't have to be something you do is what I all I'd say to people and what's better isn't being straight and 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 not making mistakes it's like that's all prohibition in some sense what's mm -hmm. better is no you need an adventure man you need to get out there and have something to do and, and something worth waking up for. And you need, that's the substitute for the addiction. Excessive drinking is, is considered 13 or more drinks a week. If you have three glasses of wine every night, which would be splitting a bottle of wine with your friend, your, mm -hmm. your, your husband, whatever, um, you, you, you fall in that category. An alcoholic is defined as someone basically where they, they can't stop once they start. Often they'll drink until they pass out. Wow. Or they'll drink to where they become dysfunctional. They become the kind of person everyone goes, my God, you're slurring your words. You're not safe to drive. Mm -hmm. They get DUIs. They, their boss has trouble like you need, right. need to quit coming to work hungover but an excessive drinker is 13 if you drink six drinks a week if you're a woman you have a 40 percent higher incidence of breast cancer if you drink up to 10 drinks it goes up to 70 percent higher chance of getting that's incredible breast cancer so just the health benefits one of the things that's coming out of, of england is research that if you stop drinking for 30 days just cut back and what they're finding is people are living longer that's clearing out their kidneys it's it's the uh, arterial uh, sclerosis is being reversed mm. um, you know people are having all kinds of um, uh, more energy they're losing weight most of the things that we do that are addictions <coughs> are to numb out our anxiety to numb out our pain to numb out the memories of trauma to numb out our discomfort around being people in a social being with people in a social <coughs> situation the fear that I won't have fun I won't be interesting I'm more relaxed I'm more fun you know uh, and that's right. the big myth is I won't have a fun life there's something about my mom she has a way of like making it sound like a really bad f idea and my I had a lot of aunts and uncles and um, second cousins and stuff that were all alcoholics drug addicts um, and watching them I thought ooh that is not a good look. Real, like some real white trashy stuff. Yeah. And so I was just like, no. And my mom was chiming in with, it's way bad, you don't wanna do it, you don't wanna end up like that. So she's in my ear making it sound really logical to not do it, and I'm watching people act a fool who are doing it. So I just thought, yeah. When I thought I was gonna have kids, yeah. I wanted to ask my mom, like, you were so good. Like, neither my sister or I ever got into trouble. We never did drugs, we never drank, no trouble, nothing. My sister to this day is like, the most straight and narrow person you've ever met. So when you tried it, what was it like for you? Like, yeah. Oh, alcohol made me feel like I was suppressing the urge to dance on the table. It is awesome, and I love it the most. I just don't let myself do it because it's not in. It's not congruent with wanting to live forever. There's just too many downsides, but that shit is fun. So like, I get how people get in trouble. Yeah. I just don't have an addictive personality. So for me, it was easy to be like, yeah, this is fun, but I can weigh it against the disadvantages, and there are way too many. 
unlike a lot of substances and drugs that actually attach to the surface of cells, to receptors, alcohol actually has its own direct effects on cells because it can really just pass into those cells. And the fact that it can pass into so many organs and cells so easily is really what explains its damaging effects. Ethanol produces substantial damage to cells because when you ingest ethanol, it has to be converted into something else because it is toxic to the body. And if you thought ethanol was bad, acetaldehyde is particularly bad. Acetaldehyde is poison. It will kill cells. It damages and kills cells and it is indiscriminate as to which cells it damages and kills. That's a problem, obviously. And the body deals with that problem by using another component of the NAD biochemical pathway to convert acetaldehyde into something called acetate. Acetate is actually something that your body can use as fuel. And that process of going from ethanol to acetaldehyde to acetate does involve the production of a toxic molecule, right? Again, acetaldehyde is really toxic. If your body can't do this conversion of ethanol to acetaldehyde to acetate fast enough, well, acetaldehyde will build up in your body and cause more damage. So it's important that your body be able to do this conversion very quickly. And the place where it does that is within the liver. And cells within the liver are very good at this conversion process. But they are cells and they are exposed to the acetaldehyde in the conversion process. And so cells within the liver really take a beating in the alcohol metabolism events. It is the poison, the acetaldehyde itself, that leads to the effect of being inebriated or drunk. I think most people don't realize that, that being drunk is actually a poison-induced disruption in the way that your neural circuits work. No amount of alcohol is safe. Drinking alcoholic beverages can be harmful to our health. It's the most damaging drug to society as a whole. The danger goes up with every additional drink. Alcohol is actually considered a class one carcinogen or cancer-causing agent, so that's the same category as benzene and tobacco smoke. It is the poison, the acetaldehyde itself, that leads to the effect of being inebriated or drunk. Canadian health authorities had previously said that a low risk amount of alcohol was about 10 drinks per week. Your risks start to increase at one standard drink per week. Even just seven glasses of wine across the week, there is going to be some degeneration of your brain in response to that alcohol intake. I was wanting to be a certain person, but making all the wrong decisions. Citing some of this research about alcohol's impacts suggested lowering that to two drinks per week. In Western cultures, alcohol is the most harmful drug overall because it's the most harmful drug to society because it's the most widely used drug. A very small percentage of individuals in the world can quit anything on their own. And really, our main message is that less is better. You know, when it comes to health, you know, less is more. What do we know about alcohol's impact on us? Alcohol is one of the leading behavior-related causes of health problems and deaths, and also some social problems and, and economic costs, ranging from things like injuries and accidents to cancers and actually uh, heart and cardiovascular disease. Shoveling alcohol, you know, hiding, hiding away the problems has been something we've been very, become very expert at. But the really sad statistic is that only 10% of people suffering from an alcohol use disorder seek treatment. I hit rock bottom. I got lost in the sauce of drinking. Out of those 10% of the people, only one will have any form of long-term success. This is why I don't like alcohol, and this is why I don't like drugs, because I don't, you're, you're not in control 
a substance is doing that. And that means 90% of people yeah. who are suffering right now aren't going to seek treatment. And you know why they're not going to seek treatment? It's because they've been told that all they can do is quit and go to meetings for the rest of their huh. life. I remember having a conversation with Patrick one night. He picked me up in his car and we're sitting together. And it was awkward silence for a good 15, 20 minutes. So eventually one of my friends who was going through it bad, I was at uh, prison to pick him up. I'm sitting outside till three o'clock in the morning. Finally, he gets out, gets in a car. This was like his fourth or fifth UI. We didn't say anything to each other. And, and we're driving home and I don't say anything to him. And he says, uh, hey, Pat, how come you're not saying anything to me? I said, I said, you know, just to be honest with me, I just see you being in pain. Finally, I said, I don't know why I choose to do what I'm doing. And he says, you always have a choice. And he says, you always have a choice. And we started talking a little bit about and we started talking a little bit two words about he said, you know, Mario, two words perspective. And those two words change everything for me. And those two words change everything for me. But as we were having a conversation, I just want to see you get out of this thing. I don't know what you're going through, but you're in pain. And I hope you realize there's value to life. I don't know how to help you. I don't have a method. The only thing I know is what I've seen others go through, whether it's AA and all these other programs. He went into asking me who I want to be, what do I want to do? And we just went through a whole conversation and it was a human conversation. It was a people conversation. It was no business, no numbers. It was just relationship. But uh, I hope you figure out a way to get through this. Do you know that I love you? Yes. You think I care about you? Yes. Do you think I want the best for you? Yes. Do you want to be friends long-term? Yes. Are we family? Yes. Do you want to change? And that's the one where I got stuck. You have to want to change if you're struggling with some kind of addiction, like I was. It's not easy to say that, but I wanted to change. I just didn't know how. And eventually he figured out a way to get through it and he's doing great. He's changed his life, you know, in a completely different way. Yeah, but what you said to him, people should be aware of that. That is love and support. And it's visceral because people don't want it to be true. So there are two things I would say about this. The first is both a conscious and a subconscious level. People are fearful of other drugs, illegal drugs, because it helps deflect their attention away from the problems of alcohol at a personal level, but also at a, at a political level. Politicians love to get hysterical about a new drug because it means they can do something about drugs and they don't have to be held to account over their failure to deal with the problems of alcohol. Right. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that I, I would say that there's almost no family in Britain, if you look at an extended family, three generations, in which, which doesn't have someone who's been damaged by alcohol through addiction, through violence, traffic accidents, or being a victim because of someone else who was drunk and violent. Right. Almost every family in Britain is affected, but we don't own up to it. Right we kind of push it under the carpet, you know, we, we know there's a problem, but we don't talk about it because well, we don't know what to do about it, we're embarrassed. And so that shoveling alcohol, you know, hiding, hiding away the problems has been something we've been very, become very expert at. We know the pharmacology of alcohol in the brain and how it does that. It's, we, can, we can explain an enormous amount of what's going on with alcohol. Right. I mean, to me, I find that quite exciting because, you know, it's a, as a brain scientist, that's what I want to understand, I want to understand the brain. And you know, alcohol is a very interesting probe of different brain systems. And the changes we see 
underpin the effects of alcohol, you know, are relevant to all sorts of disorders. They're relevant to disorders like sleep disorders, relevant to epilepsy, relevant to anxiety, depression. This drug, which you can just go and buy in the shops, can produce these enormous changes in people's lives. Sometimes some habits can turn into lifestyles, and certain lifestyles don't lead to all the benefits and all the amazing things that life has to offer. Some lifestyles lead to very dark paths, a depression, uh, anxiety, stress, um, and if not controlled, can also lead to some of the worst case scenarios out there in life. One of them being never reaching your capacity, never really having an identity or a self-worth, losing all integrity, all dignity, and losing yourself. Just a few years ago, I was in a very dark place in my life. They say that depression comes from the inability to construct the future in your mind. I couldn't see the future. I didn't know who I was supposed to be. I was wanting to be a certain person, but making all the wrong decisions. I made a lot of mistakes. When it comes to alcohol itself, which is something that I was struggling with at the time, it went slowly from being a work hard, play hard, have a drink, to two drinks, to three drinks, to then a habit, to then a daily habit, to then a 24-7 habit, to then a every weekend habit, getting lost in myself habit. Sometimes if you don't watch the kind of habits that you're building, they become lifestyles. Before I knew it, I was digging myself a hole and everywhere I looked, it was so dark and I lost myself. I spiraled into a sense of no self-worth and I struggled a lot and nobody knew. I hit rock bottom to the point where I almost lost my job, to the point where some people had to have very tough conversations with me. Some friends had to deal with my drama and they say hurting people hurt people. I was hurting inside and I was hurting others and didn't even know it. Many of us have probably thought about including stretching into our daily routines, as there are many potential benefits to stretching, one of the more obvious and common benefits being improved flexibility and range of motion. But what is actually happening to our bodies when we stretch and develop adaptations like improved flexibility? Well, part of this answer might actually surprise you, as a big part of this resides in your brain and nervous system. Who would have thought that your brain and nervous system had an influence or any say over your stretching and flexibility? So in today's video, we're going to take a look at the brain, certain nerves, as well as typical muscles that we stretch so that we can figure out what's going on here. We'll also talk about some of the most effective types of stretching for these adaptations or the best ways to improve flexibility over time. It's going to be a stretchy one, if you will, filled with some obvious cheesy jokes. But Let's jump right into this anatomical awesomeness. So when we think about our own flexibility or how flexible we are, we often judge or gauge that by how far we can move a joint through its range of motion, or that point in the joint range of motion where we're like, eh, that's far enough. So let's kind of set the stage with an example here, specifically a stretching example, with the typical hamstring stretch of bending over and touching your toes. And we'll also use some of these plastic bones to help us with this example. This is called the os coxa. It forms part of your pelvis, and then you can see the femur plugging in there. 
Now, when I stretch or bend forward to stretch my hamstrings, I'm gonna actually hinge forward at the hip joint. This is technically called flexion of the hip. If I bring this a little bit closer, you can definitely see what that hinging motion looks like. Now this area that I'm tapping with my thumb is significant because this is where the hamstrings actually attach. For you anatomy nerds, it's called the ischial tuberosity. A lot of people just call it the sit bone. But again, let's say we're stretching the hamstring, we hinge forward and we get to that point where the hamstrings are like, ah, that's far enough. And we're all likely not to be terribly happy with that limited amount of flexibility and range of motion because a lot of us might think we need the hamstring flexibility to be able to, say, successfully kick somebody in the head if necessary. Not promoting violence, you just never know when you might need to engage ninja mode in self-defense. But for whatever reason, we decide or choose to engage in a stretching routine for a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months and we improve that hamstring flexibility. Now instead of maybe this being the end point in that range of motion, now because of that increased hamstring flexibility, maybe I can go this far. And you can see how that could translate to touching your toes easier, but also just the overall increased range of motion of a joint. Now this principle of improving the flexibility of the muscle and that translating to more range of motion at the joint can be applied to the various muscle groups and their associated joints throughout the body. For example, if we improve the flexibility of the calf muscles, that could translate to improved range of motion at the associated ankle joint. But what is again accounting for these stopping points, that feeling of, ah, I don't want to go any further, as well as the potential changes and improvements in flexibility. Yes, things like the muscles, tendons, and other connective tissues play a role, but as we've strongly implied, this amazing structure also plays a big role, but how? But real quick before I get into the brain and nervous system, I want to take a second to say thank you to the sponsor of today's video, Yoga Body Teachers College. Since we've opened the lab, we've had a ton of different yoga teachers come through and learn about the human body. And you can probably imagine that we talked a great deal about the science of stretching, as well as other relevant anatomical and physiological processes. And this is why I'm so impressed with Yoga Body, because they specialize in science-based online certification programs for yoga teachers, yoga breathing coaches, yoga trapeze teachers, and stretching coaches. So if you're interested in starting a new fulfilling career or side job, helping people improve their health, overcome injuries, manage stress, and live their best lives longer, Yoga Body's courses might be right for you. And think about how impressive this is. Since 2007, Yoga Body has certified over 23,000 teachers in 41 countries. They're clearly onto something here. They are also backed by Yoga Alliance, American Council on Exercise, and even American Council on Education, making them one of the only schools in the world eligible for college credits. Yoga Body has also put together a free report for you called How to Choose a Yoga Teacher Training Program. And you can access this immediately by going to yogabody.com IHA. We'll also include that link in the description below. So in order for us to understand how the brain and spinal cord get involved with stretching and flexibility, we first need to see how they communicate with the actual muscles. And if we were to zoom into the muscle tissue, specifically the meat of the muscle, which is known as the muscle belly, Embedded within the muscle belly, we would see these specialized sensory receptors called muscle spindles. These little muscle spindles are encapsulated structures that contain these specialized muscle fibers called intrafusal fibers. Intrafusal just refers to inside the spindle, so it's a pretty good name. Now these intrafusal fibers inside the capsule are also going to be wrapped with these sensory nerve endings, which will then provide information to the brain about the muscle. But what type of information is this providing? Muscle spindles detect and provide information about muscle length. So let's use the biceps in this example, but again, keep in mind, this could be applied to nearly any muscle in the human body. 
And again, those muscle spindles will be embedded in the belly of the muscle, and they're going to detect the length of the muscle and even changes in the length of that muscle. And it might actually be easier to use my biceps first here. So, for example, my biceps is at a certain length right now. The muscle spindle sending information into my brain about this length. This is a different length, new information. Different length, new information. Different length, new information. It not only tells my brain the difference between, say, like, this length of the muscle versus that length of the muscle, it also tells me this versus this, how fast those length changes occur. So what does the brain do with this information? Do we become consciously aware of it? And of course, how does this relate to stretching and flexibility? Well, first let's get the signal up to the brain, and with any muscle, it's going to have to travel up a nerve. So in this particular example, we have the biceps, and there's a nerve here called the musculocutaneous nerve, but it would be a different nerve for different muscle groups. And those signals from the muscle spindle cells would travel up this nerve and eventually get to the spinal cord, then move up the spinal cord and get to the brain. Once this information is in the brain, it's going to relay to two areas that are important for our discussion. One is my personal favorite structure of the brain, and that is this, which you can see here, the cerebellum. Now besides looking quite amazing, it also participates in some amazing functions like smoothing out and coordinating skeletal muscle contractions. And it makes sense that it's receiving that information from the muscle spindles about length changes so that it can make the appropriate adjustments to muscle contractions and therefore coordination. The other area of the brain that this information is relayed to is an area called the somatosensory cortex. The somatosensory cortex is located in the parietal lobe, specifically in this fold or gyrus that I'm probing here all the way up to the midline of the brain. Now, the somatosensory cortex receives all sorts of different somatic senses from the body. Things like temperature, touch, pressure, pain, and of course, information from the muscle spindles about those muscle length changes. And what this does for you is creates a conscious awareness about body position and even sensation about when you're tugging or pulling on a muscle when you're stretching. Now this conscious awareness about body position, this understanding of where your limbs are in three-dimensional space, and even awareness about trunk or torso position is referred to as proprioception, understanding where your body parts are in three-dimensional space. And that's why sometimes the muscle spindles are even referred to as proprioceptors. They're not the only proprioceptors in the body. We can talk about some of the others in a later video. But I like to give two examples to help illustrate why proprioception is so important. And one of those examples definitely relates to stretching. The first example that I kind of want you to think of is imagine if your eyes, the input from your eyes, was the only thing that brought you information about where your body parts were in three-dimensional space. Like, yes, you can look at your arm, see where it is, look at your torso and other body parts, and your eyes bring that information in. But imagine the problems that would arise if that was the only information that you got about your body position. Because if we all held out our hand in front of us like this, when was the last time you closed your eyes and this happened? Ah, where's my arm? Where's it? Come back! Oh, you're back. Now I apologize if I scared anybody with that. I do that all the time in class to make sure people are awake and paying attention. But that crazy example doesn't really happen, right? Because we would be a hot mess in a dark room or whenever we closed our eyes if we didn't have proprioceptive input coming from the muscle spindles and other sources. So next time you turn out the lights or close your eyes to maybe make out with a significant other, be grateful that you have proprioceptive input to be aware of where your body parts are going. And also be grateful that the somatosensory cortex can also make sense and process sensations like tactile stimulation, so you can also be aware of someone else's body parts. 
And the second example as to why proprioceptive input is so important, and I promise this is finally going to get us to how this all relates to stretching and flexibility, but the second example has to do with all of this information that's coming into the brain from the muscle spindles and even other proprioceptive sources. The brain's going to get this information and be able to process it and actually will be able to send signals back to the muscle spindles and the skeletal muscles throughout the body. What it can do is adjust the sensitivity of the muscle spindles as well as adjust the tone of the muscles throughout the body. So your skeletal muscles are never fully relaxed. There's always some level of tone or some level of contraction that's being stimulated by the nervous system. And because the brain can take this information and modulate it, it can make some really cool and important adjustments that I just mentioned that'll have to do with stretching and flexibility in just a second. But our brain does this all the time. Our brain and nervous system modulates all sorts of different sensory information. And so if I said to you, you're probably wearing underwear and or pants. If you're not wearing any of those, how you consume your online content is your business, but I'm assuming most of you are probably wearing underwear and or pants. Now, if I said to you, can you feel your underwear and pants? Up to this point, you probably weren't aware of that sensation, but now you can probably feel them around your legs and your nether regions. And this is just another example of how your nervous system modulates and prioritizes different sensory input. When you're first putting on the underwear and the pants, your nervous system's like, okay, I can feel the sensation. Do I need to worry about it? Is it dangerous? And when your brain's like, okay, we're good, underwear and pants are safe, it'll modulate or kind of deprioritize or lower the priority of that sensation to the point where you're kind of not really worrying about it in your conscious thought. This also can be applied to the proprioceptive input coming from the muscle spindles. When you first change a position, your muscle spindles will fire up a little bit and you're aware of the change in position, but once you kind of settle into that position, as long as it's safe and not compromising you, your nervous system again is gonna kind of modulate that or put that at a lower priority. But if I were to come up to you and grab your arm and quickly jerk it in one direction, your muscle spindles would really be fired up by that. And they would likely start to protect them by initiating this thing called the stretch reflex. And what I mean by protecting them is that this information or this stretch reflex that's coming from the muscle spindles is going to uh, protect the skeletal muscles from being stretched too far. Now I often give my students this textbook definition of the stretch reflex and it's this, when a muscle is stretched too far or too fast, it's going to contract and the antagonistic muscle will relax. And the classic example of the stretch reflex that many of us have probably experienced occurred likely in the doctor's office. When your leg was dangling off the table and the doctor comes up with that little hammer and quickly taps your patellar tendon. Some people call it the patellar ligament. I prefer patellar tendon because it's just a continuation of the quadriceps tendon, but we don't need to go down that road. So the doctor quickly taps that patellar tendon that will cause a quick stretch of the quad muscles. And the muscle spindles are like, nope, that's too quickly. So the signal goes right into the spinal cord. Now up to this point, we've talked a lot about the muscle spindles sending information up to the brain. But in the case of the stretch reflex, that signal is gonna go right into the spinal cord and right back out through a motor neuron to engage the muscle to contract. Because the opposite of a stretch is a muscle contraction and that will protect the muscle from being stretched too quickly. At the same time, another motor signal is gonna go out of the spinal cord to the opposing or antagonistic muscle. And in this case, this is the hamstring because you wouldn't want the hamstring to contract because that would create this tug of war situation and the stretch reflex wouldn't work properly. Now, 
some sort of a signal will make it to the brain. Uh, it's kind of a little bit delayed, or you could think of it as a little bit delayed, because we do become aware that the doctor tapped us on that patellar tendon, but the stretch reflex, the main signal again, goes right into the spinal cord and right out, because it does not want to wait for the brain's permission in order to protect the muscle. So let's apply this information to the example that we used at the beginning of the video of stretching the hamstrings. And remember, we use these plastic bones to help us with this. And as we hinge forward and stretch the hamstring, we eventually get to that point where the hamstrings are like, that's far enough, we don't want to stretch anymore. And we need to acknowledge, like we did at the beginning, that the nature or the elasticity of the muscles, tendons, and surrounding connective tissues do matter and apply to this. But as we've seen from this video, the nervous system also matters. And so when we hinge forward, the idea is that as that hamstring is lengthening and lengthening, the muscle spindles are sending that information to the brain about those length changes. And eventually we get to that point where the brain might say, you know, that's far enough. I don't really trust you to go any further. And it sends a signal back to the hamstring to change or increase the tone, almost like it's a slight increase in contraction to stop that stretched hamstring from going any further. Now, if we were to quickly go into that stretch or almost bounce into it, we might actually stimulate that stronger stretch reflex and you might feel a quicker resistance or almost like this pullback that's a little more forceful than you would if you were to go more passively and slowly into that stretch. But let's go to this idea again of doing stretching consistently for weeks or months. The idea is that the nervous system will adjust. And instead of, ha instead of having this stop, stop point here, that stopping point will be later in the range of motion. Almost as if the brain, through that consistent stretching routine, is like, okay, you've been stretching consistently for a few weeks, for a few months. I'm going to adjust the sensitivity of those muscle spindles and even where in that range of motion I'm going to increase the tone to stop you from stretching any, any further. So instead of stop having that stop point here, it's almost as if the nervous system allows you to have that stop point a little bit later, which is really fascinating to think about and how you can potentially increase your flexibility and therefore range of motion neurologically. And so let's wrap this up with a few housekeeping items. One, and like many things with the human body, we still need more information about how exactly the brain and nervous system can account for improvements in flexibility. And even comparing that like we alluded to earlier, the changes or potential changes in the soft tissues like the muscles, tendons, and ligaments. How are these interacting together and how much does one versus the other account for improvements in flexibility? It's definitely gonna be interesting as we gain more knowledge in this area. And the second housekeeping item we need to wrap up with is the type of stretching. In the examples we were using in this video, we were referring to this static passive stretching where you get to a certain point in the stretch and then hold for an extended period of time. There are definitely different types of stretching, like dynamic, ballistic, PNF to name a few, and they definitely have their place. But if our goal is to have long-term improvements in flexibility, static stretching tends to be the best supported for achieving that goal. And a routine that tends to work the best would be stretching the muscle groups that you're looking to improve the flexibility in about five to six days a week for 30 to 60 seconds for like two sets. You could think of like two sets of 30 seconds. So if you're gonna stretch your hamstrings, you could stretch into that, get to the point where you feel the stretch, hold for at least 30 seconds, and then come back up and rest for a second. You could even stretch an antagonistic or an opposing muscle in between, and then go back in for a second time for 30 seconds. So again, kind of like two sets of 30 seconds for each muscle group, five to six days a week. And lastly, if you made it this far, 
I appreciate it because we definitely had to go through a bit of information before we actually got to the stretching part. But hopefully along the way, you learn some really cool things about the brain, the nervous system, and how it interacts with the muscles. Another thing that I'm really excited about is I'm about to head to Florida to do a YouTube collaboration with another creator. And one of the things we're gonna talk about is yes, it's definitely important to have flexibility, good range of motion, but on the other hand, it's also important to train your muscles to be strong in those lengthened positions. So it's gonna be a lot of fun to come together with this video, and I'm excited to show you it when I get back. But thanks again for watching this video. If you're interested in checking out Yoga Body, we have that link in the description below. If you feel the need, like and subscribe. Please comment, we love reading through the comments. Even though we can't respond to all of them, we definitely read through as many as we can and like your guys' video ideas and your feedback. And of course, we'll see you in the next video. have a whole field of beautiful hemp plants and these hemp plants create what is known as cannabinoids. There are over a hundred cannabinoids that can be found within the cannabis plant. Cannabinoids can be found in other plants. Uh, they're found in cacao, so that's why when we eat dark chocolate we feel great. But cannabis is definitely the plant that can produce the highest levels of cannabinoids. There are cannabinoids that I'm sure you are familiar with, such as THC, CBD, and some lesser known ones like CBG and CBN. These are all acronyms. THC stands for tetrahydrocannabinol, uh, CBD for cannabidiol, uh, but these are all compounds that are found within the plants and our bodies actually interact with these compounds. Why are we having these reactions to them? It's all because of this system called the endocannabinoid system. The endocannabinoid system, it's a homeostasis controlling system, uh, basically is our physiology and how we keep ourselves in balance. We have a variety of endocannabinoid receptors, mostly CB1 and CB2, and they're located throughout the body. Uh, CB1 receptors are mostly in the central nervous system and parts of the brain. Uh, CB2 receptors are mostly in the peripheral part of the body and the skeletal system and the GI tract and the spleen and the testes and the ovaries, and they control a number of other uh, processes. We do make our own endocannabinoids that play a role in the things like you know, mood and appetite and emotion and uh, digestion and inflammation and immunity, but we could also tune up some of that homeostasis if we're lacking it by use of phytocannabinoids, phytomating uh, plant. Uh, so we have plant-based cannabinoids, which we all know as marijuana. Where do all the cannabinoids come from? CBG or cannabigerol, CBGA in its form when it's in the plant as an acid is what we know as the mother cannabinoids. All the cannabinoids come from CBG. And over time, the plant has a gene that converts those cannabinoids, the CBG, into both THC and CBD. In our process, we focus on using the buds, which most of the cannabinoids are within the flower of the plant, and we also use the leaves, but the sticks and stems aren't really useful for extracting cannabinoids. 
In order for us to extract CBD from the plants, we have to first dry the plants. We actually hand harvest every single plant and then we hang dry them in our barns and it takes about 10 days to two weeks for them to dry down, slowly cure those cannabinoids because cannabinoids and terpenes are highly volatile, meaning when they're mixed up or there's heat applied to them, they will dissipate. In order to extract the cannabinoids, there are a lot of different ways of extraction depending on what the finished product is. We use what is called ethanol extraction. We basically start first with a wash. We load a bag of ground hemp into a centrifuge and that's gonna rinse all the hemp leaves in ethanol. And that ethanol will extract the CBD, other cannabinoids, as well as the terpenes. And then it goes into what's called a rotovap. And a rotovap is a slowly circulating vessel. It's over very, very low heat. And that heat slowly evaporates off the ethanol, which then condenses onto the coils. And what's left at the end is just the oils. The difference between a marijuana plant and a hemp plant is the level of THC found in that plant. An industrial hemp plant is identified as a plant that produces less than 0.3% THC. A normal marijuana plant has about 15 to 20% THC in it, and sometimes these days you're seeing them up as high as 25 to 30%. So THC is the cannabinoid found in the cannabis plant responsible for giving you that high effect. As humans, we use cannabis recreationally, but it can also be used medicinally. Because our plants are at less than 0.3%, you won't necessarily get that high feeling. However, the THC that's in there is extremely important for what's known as the entourage effect. The plant itself has about 500 compounds in it, a couple hundred cannabinoids, and there's also a couple hundred terpenes. It takes all of those, the whole goodness of the plant, to have a, a maximal uh, benefit. Terpenes are the smells that we get from plants. Lavender, for example, the terpene that's responsible for the smell of lavender is called linalool. And linalool is found in cannabis. So is something called myrcene, which is found in mangoes, also found in cannabis. So you're looking for terpenes uh, to give you a full spectrum oil as well as cannabinoids. And the most important, uh, I think, for a full spectrum oil is the THC that's in there. So CBD, just like THC, comes from the flowers, the buds of the plant. And CBD is mainly used for the following four things. Anxiety, sleep, pain, and inflammation. CBG, just like CBD, can be found right in the plant. We actually have varieties of hemp that are CBG dominant. From our experience with CBG, it gives energy, mental clarity. CBN is different than CBD and CBG because it doesn't, there isn't a CBN dominant plant. CBN is actually degraded THC. THC oxidizes and converts into CBN. And so if you've ever smoked old weed and you felt tired after, it's probably because the THC has converted into CBN and CBN has sedating effects. So it makes you more sleepy. Nothing's 100%. There's no chance of overdose using uh, cannabinoids. The part of the brain 
that controls respiration can be impeded by opioids and cause overdose and death, there's no cannabinoid receptors in that part of the brain. There's opioid receptors in that part of the brain. Do cannabinoids work for everyone? I would say the response rate is between 80 and 90% when I certify patients. It's not a lifetime certification in New York, it's a year at a time, and I'd say 80% of patients recertify. The response is pretty overwhelmingly positive. If you're thinking about trying out cannabinoid therapies, the first thing I would recommend is reaching out to your doctor because there are different interactions with different medications that you should be aware of and hopefully your doctor can help you through that. Everyone's systems respond differently to cannabinoids in general. What we recommend is starting low and slow. It takes about a week to start noticing any kind of difference and we generally recommend taking CBD every single day for a month before making a judgment as to whether or not it works for you. It's not an instant remedy. You're not gonna all of a sudden feel like on top of the world after a day of taking it. It takes commitment and it takes routine and it's something that you have to make sure fits into your life. Good night, and that's a wrap. Body talk.